Welcome to season eight of PIN South Africa's podcast, The Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. I'm your host, PIN South Africa board member, Bongani Kona. Every year on the 15th of November, PIN centers throughout the world mark the day of the imprisoned writer. And at each event, there's an unoccupied chair. This chair symbolizes those who cannot be with us because they have been jailed for their writings. And it is from this symbol that our podcast takes its name. Each of our episodes is dedicated to a writer in prison, or a writer who has been subject to some form of abuse by the state. At the end of each episode, our guests pay them tribute, offering them a message of solidarity and thanks, sometimes in the form of a poem or a quote. In this episode, we're in solidarity with Cuban artist and activist, Luis Manuel Otero Alcantara. Otero Alcantara has become a prominent dissident voice through his powerful performance art. He is a founding member of the Artist Collective Museum of Dissidents and is the general coordinator of the San Isidro Collective, a collective aiming to promote freedom of expression. He helped organize the first non-state sanctioned art biennale in Cuba. Otero Alcantara has faced a sustained campaign of harassment and persecution as a result of his art and activism. Since 2017, he has been arrested 21 times. He was detained on July 11, following his participation in mass demonstrations during the July 2021 protests in Cuba. He has remained incarcerated in maximum security prisons ever since. He has been subjected to brutal treatment and spurious charges that have been repeatedly condemned by human rights groups. In June 2022, Luis Manuel Otero Alcantara was sentenced to five years in prison. PNSA joins PEN International, the Artist at Risk Connection, at PEN America and PEN Cuba in exile, in calling on the authorities in Cuba to drop the charges against Luis Manuel Otero Alcantara and to release him from detention. We also call for the freedom of other artists and writers who have been unjustly detained for exercising their right to freedom of expression. You can read more about the intricacies of his case in our show notes. In this fourth episode of Season 8, Show Note Tool asks Bronwyn Lohville-Yoon and Idra Novi about their novels Notes on Falling and Take What You Need. They consider mothers, daughters, and stepmothers, the historical and political context of their fiction, and the exhilaration of art. Shono Tool is a writer, editor, and curator based in Cape Town. His two books are Emma Stern, African in Europe, European in Africa, and The Marquis of Moikloof and Other Stories, which features The Road to Refile, a short story awarded the 2006 HSBC Essay Pen Literary Award. He is the editor of three volumes of cultural essays, most recently The Journey, New Positions on African Photography, which received a New York Times Critics' Pick for Best Art Books 2021. His recent curatorial projects include Congress, The Social Body and Three Figurative Painters at Norville Foundation, and Photobook, Photobook, Photobook at A4 Arts Foundation, both in Cape Town. He's the founder of Extemporary Press, an independent publisher, exploring the nexus of art and fiction. 
Whilst reading both the novels, it suddenly struck me they could share a title, even though they're vastly different novels in ambition and pace. They fundamentally deal with mothers and daughters. And it seems to be at the core of the novel. It's both the emotional center as well as the narrative fulcrum. And I was very struck by that, the relationships between a daughter and her stepmother and a daughter and her missing mother without giving too much away. Bronwyn Lofelyun is a senior lecturer in creative writing at the University of Adelaide and the former head of creative writing at Wits University. She's the co-founder and editor of Fourth World Books and former editor of Art South Africa magazine. She has doctorates from Wits University and New York University. Her first novel, The Printmaker, was published in 2016. It was shortlisted for the Sunday Times Barry Ronga Fiction Award and won the 2018 Olive Schreiner Prize. It was published in French with Edition Zoe in October 2019 and in German with Akono Verlach in 2021. Her second novel, Notes on Falling, was published in 2022. I certainly always tell my students that you have to give your characters a memory in order to have them come to life. They have to remember stuff because that's how we function as human beings. Our lives are constructed from memories of yesterday and of 10 years ago. But I'd never thought of the future as being a kind of place of memory. It seemed counterintuitive that I had to construct a future for this character in order for the past of the character to make sense. Idra Novi's most recent novel, Take What You Need, was named a spring fiction pick with the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. She's also the author of Those Who Knew, a finalist for the 2019 Clark Fiction Prize. Her first novel, Ways to Disappear, received the 2017 Sammy Rowe Prize, the 2016 Brooklyn Eagles Prize, and was a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize for First Fiction. Her poetry collections include Exit Civilian, The Next Country, and Clarice the Visitor, a collaboration with the artist Erica Baum. Her works as a translator include Clarice Lispector's novel, The Passion According to G.H., and a co-translation with Ahmad Nadalizadeh of Iranian poet Karus Abdul Malekian, Lean Against This Late Hour, a finalist for the Pen America Poetry and Translation Prize in 2021. She teaches fiction at Princeton University. I made a number of trips to the American Visionary Art Museum in Baltimore, which figures in the novel. And that museum is often for artists who, you know, whatever, didn't do an MFA program, who aren't considered insiders in a certain way, either because they lack the resources or because of racism or, in many cases, geography. And it was so interesting to me in my trips how many of the artists who are sort of relegated or, you know, just ended up through their own isolation to be in the category of visionary artists who are working outside of established communities were from rural places. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Welcome to Penn South Africa's The Empty Chair Transatlantic Conversation. This is the fourth episode of season eight. I'm Sean O'Toole, and it's my absolute pleasure to be interviewing Bronwyn Lofelun and Idra Novi. I'm in Cape Town, Bronwyn's in Adelaide, and Idra's joining us from New York. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Some basic protocols. You might hear some ambient noises. Think of them as signs of life for the listener. I thought to start 
with the reading. It seems traditional and the right way to put a listener in the mood. I thought I would do it alphabetically. If <laughs> rather we can't do paper, rock, scissors. So Bronwyn, would you mind beginning? Not at all. So I'll start reading from very close to the beginning of the book. And this excerpt is from Talia's section of the novel. And it's set in Johannesburg. At least this part of the novel is set in Johannesburg. But it's a description of two of her photographs that are that have just shown in, a, in an exhibition in Johannesburg. And this is about these photographs. She had been walking across to the slope with her camera when she'd seen the diver. So she'd stopped and quickly set up her equipment on the Carroll Street Bridge, almost dropping the big Hasselblatt as she hastily positioned it on the tripod. The diver was climbing slowly down a ladder affixed to the side of a rusting barge, while two men operating a compressor on the deck guided a long hose after him. He descended into the murky water without hesitation at its frigidity or its filth, and once he had disappeared into it, there was barely a ripple on the surface to betray his presence below. She had imagined him down there, walking ankle-deep in sludge and dead car parts, breathing slowly into the hose and feeling in front of him in the darkness. She remembered a frenzied guard dog at the wall property on the other side of the bridge, barking wildly. The noise had been a threat to the photograph that she had begun to construct in her mind from the parts of the scene before her. So she had made herself look deliberately and hard at the water, willing the diver back to the surface. She thought of the person inside that bulky brown suit carrying the weight of the metal helmet on his chest and shoulders, warding off panic in the gloom of the canal and listening to his own deep inhalations circulating through the breathing apparatus. And there had been the smell of the water, a rich dampness, rotting and chemical, overlaid by the aroma of fried food from the diner on 4th Avenue. When the diver came up, Several minutes later, Talia waited as long as she dared, looking at the viewfinder and holding the quick release ready. Then, when he was on the ladder, he paused, one heavily booted foot trailing in the water, his gloved hands gripping the steel, and she took the shot. The photograph encompassed an oily slick rippling out in circles from the diver the edge of the barge and the guanas stretching beyond him into grey light, the water viscous. And I'll stop there. Idra, would you like to go? Take What You Need has two narrators. So I'm going to read a section from the older artist who's an off-the-grid sculptor, and she is returning from a scrapyard where she gets her material in the Allegheny Mountains where I grew up, and she is coming home to her house. She lives alone and she's brought back some material, pieces of scrap metal, sheet metal, to, to start a sculpture. On the drive back from Deerfield, I tried to mentally prepare for the struggle up the front steps, to think of it as what Louise Bourgeois called the necessary battle with one's material. No real art, Bourgeois said, was possible without a fight with one's material. And wouldn't she know, having conquered just about everything, steel, marble, pantyhose, nightmares, 
Surely I could conquer a few pieces of sheet metal without tearing my shoulder from its socket. You have to become more than yourself, is what Louise said when she passed 65, the station on the life train coming up for me as well. And when Louise started sculpting cocks big as boxing bags, suspending them at whatever height she wanted. Every night I sipped a few lines from Louise in bed. I had no nerve in the morning if I skipped my nightly Louise. I'd come down the stairs and somehow pissed the hours away, sanding lids and sweeping the floor like my own maid. When I pulled into the driveway with my scrap load, I saw the idle son next door was slumped on the front steps again in his unlaced construction boots, his buzzed head hanging over his spread knees. I gave him a hug. I gave him a nod, as I've been doing since he started drawing his family's water for my spigot. He returned the nod and lowered his head to his phone. Once I had not unlatched the bed of the pickup, I felt the radius of his gaze on me again while I strained to lift the top piece of sheet metal. Do you think maybe you could get up, I said, and give me a hand? He rose immediately and shuffled over the uneven grass between our homes. He had the curved posture of someone accustomed to bracing for humiliation, and I realized it was entirely possible he hadn't offered to help because he didn't think his offer would be welcome. It's just three pieces of sheet metal, I told him, but be careful, they're heavier than they look, I warned as he reached the driveway. There was nothing particularly striking about him. He was of average height, scrawny with a pale square face and a thin scar that ran from the right edge of his chin clear up through his lower lip. His large brown eyes sat a little too close to his nose. I expected him to deal with the sheet metal in a reluctant, inefficient sort of way, but he heaved all three pieces with a swiftness that surprised me. You want to buy the door, he asked, or just inside it, I said, if you don't mind. And how could he mind? I'll stop there. <laughs> As a preface, I just want to say I'm truly delighted to be hosting this or moderating our conversation. It would take what you need is your third novel. Bronwyn Notes on Falling is your second. And the connection, I suppose, why we're having a three-way conversation is our mutual, it goes well beyond interest, love of art. It permeates these novels. I'm not going to go immediately to that, though. Some of my questions might be a little pedestrian at first, but I'm trying to think of the reader and welcome into the novels. So a basic question just to start. Why did you select that particular passage to read? Bronwyn. I suppose because that scene links some of the settings of the novel. The photograph is obviously made in New York at the lower part of Park Slope on the Gowanus Canal, which Idra would know. When I was living in New York, the Gowanus was a very stinking stretch of water that ran through the bottom end of the neighborhood that I lived in. And it's set at a time when the main character, Talia, has become a photographer, has found her metier. She's just exhibited in an important gallery in Johannesburg. And in fact, that photograph is half, I didn't read the rest of the passage, but it's half of a diptych. And the other half of that image is a photograph made across to Alexandra Township. And she photographs it on a rainy day and captures a scene with shacks kind of on the edge of the of the water. So those two 
in fact, form the basis of that exhibition, which is called Gowanus Yuxke. The Yuxke is a river in Johannesburg, which is also dealt with huge amounts of pollution. And which speaks partly to very... some of the ambitions of the novel, which is to yoke mm. two very different geographies and bring them into conversation. Yeah. Yes, I think so. And that's that's kind of what's happening both in the photograph and yeah, and in where she is. Thanks, Bronwyn. Idra? You know, I read this section because it's a pleasure to read. I think for me, I enjoyed writing it. And I had read that same little bit for audio for Poets and Writers magazine. And it felt like one section that kind of worked as a discreet reading on its own because there's a lot of things happening and you get a sense of the narrator and her voice and her passion for art. So I think that's why I had I'd read it before, so I know I could come on and do it. But I also just, I don't know, I, I it was one of those sections, you know, when you're writing a book and you're like, oh, there she is, there's the voice. And and I think that sort of stayed with me. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's 9 a.m. here. So I wanted to read something lively. Can you, just for the benefit of the reader, describe just the basic plot summary and the way you've structured the novel? I think it's key to the experience of both your fine books. So Broadman again. So the novel is structured in several parts and it takes place in, in different time periods. It opens in Johannesburg. The passage that I read is, is part of that opening. And then it goes back in time to the 90s to New York, again following Talia, who is at that point a student studying photography in New York. And then it kind of goes down a rabbit hole in the middle of the novel and we're in still in New York but we're in the 1970s and we again follow a photographer by the name of Robert who finds himself in New York struggling to be a photographer at a moment of extraordinary artistic and political foment so although historians of that period would have commented that that he's kind of at the tail end of that but he finds himself at a really critical juncture in the performance scene in New York and he photographs that without always understanding what he's looking at and then it returns to the contemporary and follows I don't think I can tell you what happens in the last section without spoiling the end of the novel. Idra? I mean, yours is very, the way you handle the narrative is very different from Ronan. Yes, I mean, there's a juxtaposition of voices in, in time periods in this novel as well, which maybe, you know, writing about art and how its life continues beyond the lifetime of the person who made the art, maybe that is something that we were both drawn to sort of explore, because I think that is something that is a legacy that, you know, if you're writing about a work of visual art or any kind of work of art, I think that that is part of the sort of imagining of an artwork within a novel is its reverberations beyond the lifetime of the person who who made the art. So there's one voice in the novel that is this estranged stepdaughter of the sculptor, and she is driving back because she's inherited, or thinks she's inherited anyway, the sculptors. And so she's driving back to the Allegheny Mountains from New York, and she's sort of reconfiguring her understanding of the person who raised her in a time of profound polarization and wrestling with her assumptions about Jean's town and the culture there and her capacity to make serious art in rural America because she has, you know, all of these, she's just been marinating and the sort of hyperbolic 
media we have in the United States about rural and urban culture. And at the same time, there's Jean, who I read, and she is the sculptor in her town who isn't marinating in any media at all. She is just waking up and making art and pursuing her passion. And some of that passion spills over onto her neighbor, Elliot. <laughs> she has the good fortune of having her phone and uh, laptop stolen. Right. Yes. But I mean, that's, you know, she's the queen of silver linings, maybe in that way. Even losing her phone doesn't stymie her art making. You know, she turns it into, which I think, you know, I wanted to write about too. She's very, she has, she has a perseverance, which I think is so integral to making art. But, you know, if somebody stole my phone, I hope they don't. How do you reorient and say, okay, that doesn't mean that the art stops. It doesn't mean that your day is over. You know, we can live beyond our technology. Yeah. It's my natural instinct to want to speak about the art in the novels, but I've pushed it back. Whilst reading both the novels, it suddenly struck me they could share a title, even though they're vastly different novels in ambition and pace. They fundamentally deal with mothers and daughters. And it seems to be at the core of the novel. It's both the emotional center as well as the narrative fulcrum. And I was very struck by that, the relationships between a daughter and her stepmother and a daughter and her missing mother without giving too much away. Would you accept that as a very flattened description of your novels? <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that the two novels, if I think about, you know, Idra's novel, reading that mother-daughter relationship, it's a conflicted relationship it's a battle that relationship whereas in notes on falling the battle never happens because the mother is absent so the daughter mm -hmm. in a way has no mother to fight with and sometimes envies her school friends who fight with their mothers and is other, at other times happy that she never had a mother to fight with but there's an essential conflict in her relationship to this absent mother because she feels abandoned I suppose that also connects the two relationships, Idra. I don't know if you would agree with that. There's a sense of even though Jean is present in Leah's life, she's absent. So the absence is kind of at the center of it and conflict that's tied up with that absence is critical to both relationships, I think. That was so beautifully said, Robin. I think <laughs> I, I absolutely agree with that. I think I think that, you know, maternal absence physical absence, but psychic presence, yeah. you know, the echo of that is something yeah. that we were both exploring and how that echo becomes part of works of art too, that I think like, yeah. that's something that, you know, art can do is that the absence of a person can become manifest yeah. in other ways through art making. And I think I really wanted to write in this book about stepmothers and how yeah. I think quick we are still as a society to see anyone but a biological mother is suspect. And, right. you know, I don't know what the case is in South Africa, but I know here that, you know, stepmothers, you don't have any legal rights. So even though Jean stepped in as a stepmother, when she leaves the marriage, she doesn't have any legal rights to custody right. to the child right. that she raised. And I think that that is pretty, pretty brutal for both the mother figure and for Leah as, as the daughter, because there's some sort of, you know, misogynist underpinning there yeah. to all of that. And they're both 
find substitutes. I mean, the two mothers who are loom large in your story are Louise Bourgeois and Agnes Martin. Those are the mothers of Jean. Those are her chosen mother figures. And <laughs> what a beautiful parallel. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, as we all do in a way, you know, and I right. think Ro, when you're talking about sort of art making when the Guanas Canal, which they're trying to clean up here yes. in Brooklyn now, I, I think it may be futile. There's like these giant so. toxic sponges that are supposed yeah. to absorb toxins. And in yeah. fact, the other day I was saying to another writer who's a mother, and I was like, sometimes I feel like I am one of the sponges in the Guanas, <laughs> that my job as a mother is to like absorb all this toxic turmoil. You know, the, you know, children need to get out of their systems, you know, like they take in the world like a canal. And then yeah. I think parents, both mothers and fathers, you know, we are these sponges that have to sort of help absorb some of those toxins. And, and so I think it's interesting that you were sort of seeing how this toxic body of water can be kind of a parallel or, or a metaphor yeah. even for something about the narrative itself. Yeah. I was interested to read some of the reviews, Idra, of the novel and there's sort of one narrative that comes out is it's a portrait of Trump land or the Trump heartland, and mm. it's an issues novel. But the thing that struck me and the note I made is that Jean, the stepmother, is really the central protagonist, and she's this furious bundle of energy who seems to fight with herself and to recognize that she has a credible voice. And she can be, despite any kind of outside input. She has to learn welding on YouTube. And she doesn't yeah. have any yeah. feedback from a mentor. And it's kind of remarkable. It was amazing how the issue as such recedes to an extent. Just because of this protagonist that can encompass multitudes as well as contradiction. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's so beautiful. I think that contradiction this sort of ambivalence she feels about her attraction to what she calls art with a capital A, and also her sense of minimizing what she's doing in order to not get inhibited, right? Like, I think you can only make art if you sort of trick yourself in believing the stakes are low a little bit, because then I think you kind of freeze up. And so she has to, as I think, you know, probably true for me as well, where you kind of have to almost say, oh, I'm just going to, try something new today and experiment and let the world recede in some extent in order to just be true to the art that she's welding and, 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 you know, to the metal she's torching in her living room. It's a novel about isolation. I wrote it in the pandemic and I don't think of it as a pandemic novel explicitly, but it is a novel about when you are in isolation and thinking that the people around you or the books you have around you, as Brahman brought up, you know, she reads a lot of Louise Bourgeois and Agnes Martin that, that you have to, you end up getting, trying, getting so much from very few sources and influences because you're just not in contact with the rest of the world. And maybe it deepens relationships, whether it's your neighbor or it's a book from the flea market, because when you aren't out and traveling and, and talking to other writers that you you know, you're scrambling to get everything you need from very few people. Bronwyn, a question. We know each other, so I know a little bit of your biography. And, you know, I struggled with it to formulate questions that drew explicitly from biography. But the character of Talia does mm. loosely 
overlap with a timeline of your personal biography of going to New York. Mm. Can you talk about yeah. that sort of dipping into the well of personal experiences and transforming it into the subject of fiction? Well, it's a minefield. The chronology of Talia's story sort of roughly mirrors mine, as you've correctly said. And I didn't want to be a novel. I didn't want to be recognized by you or any, you know, people who know me as being in the novel. So she had to do things that I didn't do. And I had to try and construct a character who was not me. And I was stymied for a very long time. So I think she was the one character. She's the central character. And yet she took the longest to evolve. Robert was much easier. Robert is also based on a historical character. He was much easier, I suppose, because he wasn't close to me. I don't know if Idra has the same experience because you've revealed that you grew up in the Allegheny Mountains. So I assume there's something of your life in that story. <laughs> but you don't, you know, you're, you're trying to create a character who stands apart from you, who thinks differently to you, who has a kind of different emotional repertoire to you. And it takes a long time to, to find that character, for me, if they're, if they're too close. So she eventually, and I think the thing that was interesting about Talia is that she came into focus, not when I gave her a history. So the latter parts of her story were written quite late. And I came to the understanding that the reason she just didn't kind of cohere is because I hadn't imagined the future for her. I hadn't. I hadn't seen who she was. I hadn't seen who she was, who she could become. There was a past, there was a history, there was her life in New York, but her future was a complete blank. And it was only when I wrote the contemporary Talia that the younger version of her suddenly made sense. Because I certainly always tell my students that you have to give your characters a memory in order to have them come to life they have to remember stuff because that's how we function as human beings our lives are constructed from memories of yesterday and of 10 years ago but I'd never thought of the future as being a kind of place of memory it seemed counterintuitive that that I had to construct a future for this character in order for the past of the character to make sense so I don't know if that resonates with any of your experience Idra yeah, I loved that the the term you use, emotional repertoire, and I, it's such a fantastic way to describe character development. I think I'm gonna have to quote that. <laughs> uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful way because it is almost like the songs you play are. Right. You, there's an emotional repertoire; these sort of like right. emotional habits that that a character right. plays, or that, that that we all play. And Leah in this novel, you know, you said about Talia that there is an autobiographical overlap. She's much younger than I am. And so mm. the pandemic or the Trump years sort of hit her life at a very different time than mine. I was, you know, about 10 years older than she is. And so I saw her just as a generational difference too, and how yeah. she was reacting to places that I think I just sort of came of age and at a different time. And, and I think that that emotional repertoire, I also wanted her to not be somebody that people would sort of identify with me. I invented a different partner for her. I identified nice. a different career for her. I did all these things and it is interesting that, you know, people just assumed she was like a doppelganger for me anyway, that, and I yeah. was like, no, she has a different emotional repertoire. I did not have this term. <laughs> Only I had had it. And also it was interesting what you said about imagining a different future. Yeah. In addition to 
that sort of like constructed fictional past because I think you want to see your character on a continuum of experiences and how that emotional repertoire plays out as they move through time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You have to give them stuff to do in the future. (laughs) You have to imagine what they're going to become. Otherwise they just sort of end. They just kind of stop somewhere. So, and I mean, you may not work that into the fiction, but in your own conception of the character, you have to know what is this character becoming? How are they going to turn out? Even if you don't write that full story, but you, you, you have to have a sense of their, their movement through time. Yeah. And also, I think something I've noticed more is how a character responds to life inside the house and outside mm-hmm. the house whether it's in right. nature, whether it's in a hardware store, whether it's at a gas station. And I right. read something recently that, you know, at least if we, in the United States, people spend 70% of their time inside the house. People yeah. just, and that may oh. be post-pandemic, but people just don't go outside. Yeah. And so I was aware of that a lot writing this novel. I mean, I think the pandemic was probably much higher than 70%, but just yeah. how much, you know, maybe that habit of being indoors, what happens when characters go outside? I mean, Jean spends a lot of time, you know, torching scrap metal in her living room, but she has to go and get a glue gun and she has to, you know, go to the supermarket or like certain times. And then how does that reveal her relationship to herself and to the world when she, those few times when she is out and, you know, has to reckon with other people and same thing for Leah, you know, when I sort of, I wanted her to go berserk at the gas station, which I have never done. I, I, people keep asking me, did you ever shout at anyone at the gas station? And I said, not yet. Hoping to keep that true for the rest of my life into the future, Bronwyn, as you said, but yeah, yeah. I just was like, what do you learn about a character's, you know, continuum of experiences when they leave the safety of their home? I'm curious about that, the temporalities of the novels and Settling into time periods that in the Wikipedia version just get flattened. So, Idra, your novel is pre-Trump. You were very strategic in not mentioning the Trump presidency, gesturing at this dislikable politician who's coming up and even Jean is sort of put off by him. And Bronwyn, very early in the novel, Talia meets a Swedish journalist and there's mm. talk of the new dispensation. And there's a, there's a great sense of these protagonists anchored in shifting historical time, time that is traumatic potentially, but also with some new possibilities in it. Was it yeah. difficult going back into that time, even if the Obama period now is mm. not that long ago, but it feels like a halcyon period that's disappeared? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the book extends past the pandemic when by the end, Leah's going back to see what she can do to find a home for the sculptures. And I think not to give away too much, don't want to give a spoiler, but I think, you know, it was sort of important to me to think about how everyone was living in this sort of like Trump lash time where his name did feel so like you had like sort of a bodily reaction to it. And I really wanted the novel to not just be about that. I mean, I think having grown up in the Allegheny Mountains and I've driven back there, that I think many of the things were sort of maybe heightened or more hyperbolic during that time. But much of what I'm writing about was true when I was growing up there in the 90s. So, and in some ways, some things are sort of just 
more dire in certain respects, but they're not necessarily changed fundamentally culturally, you know, in mm-hmm. some respects and others, I think it is sort of dialed up in different mm-hmm. ways. But I think that what was important writing it for me was that I just wanted to not have some sort of polemical or just have any of the characters sort of be getting on a soapbox or any of these things, because I just wanted mm-hmm. to stay in the scene and the immediacy of these characters, you know, moving through these difficult decisions yeah. and these relationships so that I hope the book sort of transcends the time it's about, I think was a concern for me mm-hmm. and why I just kind of wanted to have it be a little more muted, what was going on politically. Yeah, I think that what one always has to remember is that when you're in a moment that is important historically, and I mean, I think that for Talia being in South Africa in 1994 it was a moment that was unmistakably critical to the whole history of South Africa. So it's not as though anyone in that moment could sort of say, well, I don't really know what's going on. It was very clear what was going on for anyone in that. And yet at the same time, you know, I mean, if I remember back to being in South Africa at that critical juncture, you have a sense of history, but you're also you're also just going about your life, you know. So, I mean... And I think the same is true when I moved to New York in the 70s. I didn't move to New York in the 70s when the novel moves to New York in the 70s. How was I going to write about a period in the history, in the artistic history of New York without sort of making generalizations about it, without repeating things that we already know that have been said. And the only way to do that is to stay very closely inside the framework of the character. And I spoke to a lot of people who lived through those important, many of those important performances. And the character of John, for example, knew. He knew this was important. And he said many people who were going from performance to performance knew this is this is something. This is really important. But Robert doesn't know. Robert's just trying to fathom out who he is and how to take photographs and and how not to be a complete failure. So it was, I think, in a way easier to write that period from the point of view of someone who wasn't very good at what he was doing and who didn't completely understand what he was looking at. He didn't know what contact improvisation was. He, he, he just he couldn't make sense of it. And yet we know how important it is now. He just didn't know what the hell it was. And yet he was photographing it and filming it. So I wanted a character who had a sense of something, but he couldn't articulate it either visually or verbally. And so maybe that was a way of avoiding sort of making statements. There's a great line by John somewhere in the middle. And he says, that's what history does, lumps everyone together. But it's a big mistake yeah. to assume that they were all one big group of experimenters. And I mean, one could apply that statement, mm-hmm. even though it's speaking about the downtown dance scene of the 70s, to the yeah. characters of your novel, Idra. Both Jean and Elliot refuse the stereotypes of the Appalachian territory. There's great contradiction in them, but sensitivity. And they're not cartoon cutouts of a region. Well, thank you. That was, you know, sort of a driving question for me writing this novel was how to give them the complexity that I think 
everybody has and not to sort of flatten them in that way. And I think that a lot of fiction I come across, often the characters from Appalachia are written in cultural shorthand and it's not good writing. If you can't write somebody with complexity, don't write them at all. And so I wanted to grant them the complexity of everyone that I know growing up there and the Appalachian artists I know who are incredibly sophisticated and incredibly serious and passionate and taking risks sometimes that I don't see in urban artists who maybe just assume they have some sort of default cachet because they live in a city. And it's interesting, you know, I made a number of trips to the American Visionary Art Museum in Baltimore, which figures in the novel. And that museum is often for artists who, you know, whatever, didn't do an MFA program, who aren't sort of considered insiders in a certain way, either because they lack the resources or because of racism or in many cases, geography. And it was so interesting to me in my trips, how many of the artists who are sort of relegated or, you know, just ended up through their own isolation to be in the category of visionary artists who are working outside of established communities or groups, you know, as you were talking about the Anne Bronwyn's novel, were from rural places because there isn't an artistic community there. They were sort of artists who were operating under the known surface of American art. But there's something about working under the known surface, you know, just the way coral grows under the known surface, that bright and beautiful things can be there that we miss. Jean subscribes throughout the novel to Art Forum. She has a brief period in Chicago, but returns back home to essentially look after her father. And I love the expression you used, an off-the-grid artist. I was struggling a little bit to find the right prefix. That's perfect. But there is the center and periphery that perhaps distinguishes your novels. Bronwyn, the artists that you're dealing with are very much canonical, even if they come out of the kind of avant-garde of the 60s and 70s. Question to both of you, how would you describe your relationship to the art world, both formally and just in your day-to-day activities? Well, as you know, Sean, a lot of my professional life has has been enacted in the art world as a writer and a sometimes curator, maker of catalogues, collaborator with artists. So I've spent a lot of time in South Africa, certainly working alongside visual artists, but at the same time never pretending to have any talents as far as visual art is concerned myself. You know, people often ask me, well, do you take photographs or do you draw? Or, you know, I mean, I take photographs like the next person with my cell phone, but I very deliberately, consciously and smartly stay away from making visual art. But I think I'm interested in the impulse to make particularly visual art. It was true in the printmaker, Sean, in my first novel that you would be familiar with. The artist who feels compelled to make images like your character, Jean Idra, even if nobody ever is ever going to see what she's making, she's building these crazy things in her living room knowing that probably nobody will ever look at them except for Elliot and maybe her daughter will come and, you know, rescue them. But she feels compelled. And that interests me, that compulsion to to keep going when it seems sort of useless, financially useless, but it must be done. I mean, I guess the fact that art isn't utilitarian is what makes it so exhilarating because it's meaning 
has to be sort of internal and it's fluid and moving so that its meaning is always changing because the meaning of a pitcher is that it holds water or milk or something and its meaning is fixed. But because there's no utilitarian purpose for visual art, you know, its meaning is constantly open for reinterpretation, which I think is what keeps it dynamic, you know? And I I don't think I have any particular talent perhaps for visual art, but I love making things. And I love that the stakes are low because I don't teach visual art. I'm you know, never going to put anything anywhere. And so as Jean does in the novel, I think I discovered a love of making, you know, visual art just for the sheer joy of it with my children, the way Jean does, you know, when, when Leah's young and they sort of chalk up the driveway and she realizes she, you're, you know, we're making sculptures out of cardboard boxes. That did come from experience of having done those things, you know, when my children were small and realizing that I just gave myself over to it. And often I would continue to build things when they were already hungry and, you know, racing to the kitchen for a snack or something. And so when I was working on this book, I realized that I wanted to have the bodily experience of welding. And so I found a female welder in New York who, Julia Murray, who's also, you know, a metal artist herself. And she was the only woman in the welders union for the bridges of New York. She would hang upside down and like, bring her tick torch and fix things. And so she welded in her living room. And so her setup for welding at home, despite the sort of risks of the chemicals and the argon gas, very much influenced the details of Jean's setup in her living room. And so I worked with Julia, but then I got very interested in working with artists where I grew up and where Jean is making art because it's such a different environment from New York. And so I worked with Norm Ed, who is a metal artist and just a mixed media artist in my town in the Allegheny Mountains, who's been making art for such a long time. And I wrote a profile of him for Orion Magazine because he has decades of art in the auto repair store where he lives. And he just keeps making art because it makes sense to him. You know, that's just why he does it because he wakes up and that's what makes sense to do is to sort of find new ways of making meaning out of discards. And I also took a class with the Center for Metal Arts in an old steel mill in my town. And every person I work with, whether it was the artist in New York, the author good artist that I went with Norm Ed or at the Center for Metal Arts, they all went about making a box differently, which I think is the discovery of visual art is the approach to it is that every artist, the individuality of process so that even though a box basically has six sides, and I thought before I started welding myself that everyone would probably have some practical way of torching a box, but it wasn't true. All three of them thought about sort of creating a box in entirely different ways. And I found that really telling about artistic process, I think, in general. The novel, has it prompted solicitations from galleries of interest to look at your welding? My own? Oh my goodness, no. No, no, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Yeah, no, I think my boxes will only be holding up books on my shelf. <laughs> that is their face. Both novels include quotes from artists. Take What You Need includes Agnes Martin's writings, Louise Bourgeois. Bronwyn, your novel starts, I think, with a quote by Steve Paxton. And mm. Artists, shall I say, often leave extraordinary writings behind. A very basic question, at what point did you decide to incorporate those into your novel? Were they sort of raw material right at the beginning or did they come in later in the drafting process? Yeah, so the Steve Paxton quotations that are dotted throughout the novel were 
we're kind of anchoring the novel as it looks now is is slightly different from the way it looked for up until about three minutes before it went to print <laughs> and then something happened so the, the Steve Paxton quotations were kind of anchoring the chapters all the way through that actually comes from it's a transcript he is speaking to a video of a, of a contact improvisation performance in New York in 1970, I think it is, or 72, one of the earliest films of contact improvisation, and he's describing what's happening. So that was fundamental right from the start. The novel is called Notes on Falling, partly because those quotations are meditations on falling, what it means physically to fall? What does it mean for a dancer to fall? And I think, you know, one of the key innovations of contact improvisation was to examine how to fall, how to break apart the formality of ballet, for example, or other classical dance languages, and to engage the body in movement in a completely different way. And Part of that is to understand that the body collapses, the body trips and knocks things over and bangs its knees. And and so the quotations were always sort of key to my understanding of what I was doing right from the start. Idra? I think that the quotes came to me kind of organically because... I was reading a lot of books, autobiographies by artists. I read Celia Paul's Self-Portrait. I had the writings of Agnes Martin next to me. I had Louise Bourgeois at my bedside. I was trying to sort of do this sort of immersive method acting, I guess, of Jean's life, keeping the books nearby. Anne Truitt, her day books mm. were very, very mm. influential. And I just tried to read a lot of books by women artists who were articulating their own process. And just to think about how they sort of created this lexicon to describe their relationship to the physicality of their materials, the limits of what they could do, whether it was because of their access to the materials or the materials themselves. And I think this book for me was a lot about sort of how much the struggle with one's materials, as I read that Louise Bourgeois quote in in the section I read, determines the art that you make. And I really got a lived sense of that welding myself, where how often I had to pivot and make something slightly differently because I made a tack weld and it didn't work, <laughs> you know? And then there was something ugly. So I had to sort of hide it and add a piece, you know, tilt this or tilt that. And I think that that serendipity that comes from intention that gets thwarted is true for making art and is part of the adventure of it. And I wanted to capture that too, because as you said, you know, this novel, it is about people sort of reckoning with the political times that they're in. But then there is the self, you know, that is just placed in that time. But maybe there's just like some intrinsic drive that, you know, can transcend the era and, and the, the sort of polarization of an era. And I think that's humanity, right? That, that people aren't entirely beholden to the categories of their time. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm interested in what you're saying, Idra, about making. I grew up with a father who was a civil engineer and then and all his life did woodwork and I spent a lot of time hammering things in my father's workshop. I didn't, like you, continue making things, but I'm married to someone who spends their lives making things. So I have a deep empathy for 
that aspect of your character, Jean, who is interested in material and interested in how things are made and she's interested in the practicalities as well as the kind of emotional content of what she's making. So in this novel, in Notes on Falling, the characters are photographers, so their connection to the physical is via their cameras and the way they move through the world. So Talia works with analog cameras and she is very physically engaged in the process of making photographs. So she carries heavy cameras around, she walks everywhere, she kind of climbs up things. So the way in which making engages the body is very interesting to me. Yeah, it, it interests me too. And I think there's a way that we think that writing is entirely in, in the mind. But yeah. I find that whatever you lived out on the street, you know, if you have an altercation, as you know, on the subway, not, you know, or just are part of some sort of weird, sudden spectacle on the subway, which has happened a lot here since the pandemic. And it's just, it's, you know, there's a lot of things that are like very unpredictable, you know, wherever you live, whether you're in a city sharing public transportation or whether you're in a rural mm-hmm. place and, you know, have to swerve to miss a deer on the road. And I think that, Something that I was thinking a lot about is how I've moved between those unpredictable sources because I go back and forth a lot between, you know, where I, where my family is in the Allegheny Mountains and here. And, and so the things that I think put me in a high alert state in the city are so different from what puts me in a high alert state when I'm back in Appalachia. And so how does that shape how, what a writer writes, you know? Mm. And I think, Bronwyn, you've lived in different places. And when you're mm. next to the Stinky Canal, the Guanas, you know, years ago, <laughs> what puts you on a high alert state about not falling in that canal is mm. very different you know, from where you're living now. And so how does that impact the writing we do in our imaginations? I think that's part of making also, mm. you know, like those those things that set you off and, and sh- shape your imagination. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to borrow a phrase you just used, Idra, high alert. It gives me a cue to move to an important part of the podcast, which is the tribute section. And the empty chair for this episode is Cuban artist and activist Luis Manuel Otero Alcantara. Uh, He was detained in July 2021, and his works were confiscated. Many of those works featured the Cuban flag. In June of 2022, after a trial behind closed doors, he was sentenced to five years in prison for the crime of insulting national symbols. I'm going to ask Idra to read and then Bronwyn a short tribute. The tribute I chose is from Ames Césaire's Notebook of a Return to the Native Land, which I first read years ago. And when we read the biography of the writer and the tribute today, I immediately thought of Césaire and his fortitude and determination and just passion for making art despite all odds. It's this beautiful bilingual edition that came out from Wesleyan University Press, a reissue of it. And it's translated by A. James Arnold and Clayton Eshelman. It's the Ames Césaire. Here at the end of this first light, my virile prayer that I hear neither the laughter nor the screams, my eyes fixed on this town that I prophesy beautiful. Grant me the courage of the martyr. Grant me the savage faith of the sorcerer. Grant my hands the power to mold. Grant my soul the sword's temper. I won't flinch. Make my head into a figurehead. 
And as for me, my heart, make me not into a father, nor a brother, nor a son, but into the father, the brother, the son, nor a husband, but the lover of this unique people. Make me resist all vanity, but espouse its genius like the fist, the extended arm. Make me a steward of its blood. Make me a trustee of its resentment. Make me into a man of determination, of termination. Make me into a man of initiation. Make me into a man of meditation. Thank you. Bronwyn? Thanks. I'm going to read two poems by the Venezuelan poet, Francisco Marquez, who actually lives in New York. The first poem is called Late Winter After Leaving My Country. It was the idea of distance, not distance itself, that troubled me, even saying it, exile, breathless, betrayed the feeling. Some say the gift should be perspective, but the desolate field of ice over water does not console me. A sight like a feeling that arrived as winter began to make sense, every suffering illuminated by form and reason, like an answer to a question that came with no asker until the shade of crystallized blue washed over the entire season, the half-dark that consumed the days, nothing but a color to latch onto grief. Wouldn't it be easier to say the lake was a sign of danger? a spectre revealed by nature's infinite gaze? It wasn't. The ice had been hard for months. So hard snowbanks collected and lingered and flocks of geese crossed over it like a bridge in which even skaters abandoned their tracks who followed the path as far as it went, disappearing like the passing of a dream. A dream, that is what it felt like to see shoots rise on the branches, or ice clarify daily into water, the confirmation that all had been lost before, before it returned and returned, and know it, everything returns. And then a short poem by the same poet called Lullaby. Nights I couldn't sleep, my mother sang to me about a boy who wanted to be flown into heaven. Every day, climbing up the tower he lived in to see the blue doves flying by, and every day climbing down, weeping into a featherless sky. Sometimes I think of him, what it was like for him, wingless after the song, his second life repeating in the other world where music waits to be sung. Beautiful. Loved the endings. It really escalates the volume of the poem there in the in the closing line. My tribute is it draws on something that the Cuban American artist Coco Fisco wrote in 2021. And I would urge people to find the longer piece online. It's on Eflux, which is a well-known art journal. And it begins like this. There is a black artist in Cuba who has turned his own struggle with state authorities into a media spectacle that dramatizes the situation of his people. His work points to the contradictions between his society's purported ideals and the governing elite's ruthless pursuit of total power and wealth. He has been thrown in jail dozens of times, 
and tens of thousands of Cubans around the world follow him online. He is self-taught and of humble origins. He lives in a poor neighborhood of old Havana, not far from the luxury hotels the tourists flock to so that they can visit Cuba before it changes. The artist's name is Luis Manuel Otero Alcantara. Thank you. Idra Bronwyn, it was a delight to read your books and then have the opportunity to talk about them. I made a note and I want to share it. It's sort of, I, I don't think it's criticism. I mean, it's a praise. Idra, take what you need is brisk, efficient, economical. The action unfolds like a fully realized short fiction. Bronwyn, notes on falling is expansive and detailed with even the minor characters lovingly detailed. I love Courtney pointing to the cameras, the security cameras introduced by the mayor. I love that efficiency. I also love the shock of the endings. I'll leave it there. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. It was an honor to share this novel with both of you and with Laura Mm -hmm. and to take part in the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Lovely to meet you, Idra. Thank you, Sean, Bronwyn and Idra for this enriching and energizing conversation. Thank you to Andre Burnett for producing this episode. Thanks to our executive producer, Lara Buxbaum, to Penn SA board members, Nadia Davids, Yawande Omotoso, Kate Hyman, and the whole of the board of Penn South Africa. And thanks too to Amy Bell Mulaudzi and Jahan Jones Radkowski for their support. Join us next week for a new episode of season eight of the Empty Chair, a transatlantic conversation. If you want more information about our work on protecting freedom of expression and free speech and our solidarity with imprisoned writers across the globe, please visit www.pensouthafrica.co.za. This podcast series is funded by a grant from the U.S. Embassy in South Africa to promote open conversation and highlight shared histories. The podcast lineup is determined by Penn South Africa and the views expressed by our participants in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the policies of the United States government. Thank you so much for listening.